we are going to be uh, starting our study in the book of Micah. Uh, last couple weeks we were in the book of Jonah, and now we're in Micah. And Micah is the next book in the order of the canon of Scripture in our, in our Bible. Uh, it comes after Jonah in the Old Testament, and it's, um, Micah was a prophet. And uh, while it comes right after the book of Jonah, this, the, the events of Micah took place about 100 years after the events of Jonah, to give you some, uh, just an, some clarity on when the time was. Um, and for our, the beginning of our time this morning, I'm going to try to give us a little bit of an overview of this book, so that as we uh, work through the, the, the pages of, this, of the book of Micah, that we'd be able to understand and have clarity about what it, what it is about um, and why it's in our Bible. Um, but before we begin, I'd like to start us off with a word of prayer. Jesus, we are desperate for, um, for you, for a word from you. We want to hear from, from you and from your scriptures that we would be able to, to hear and understand your heart and, your, um, and who you are and your character. And There's a reality of, of this book that we are about to work through as a church that there's some things in this text that are, are hard to understand, hard to, um, to grasp and to, um, to chew on and Lord, we just ask that as your word says, as, as we seek you, we will find you. And I pray that for each and every one of us, wherever we may be at, as, as we hear the words from this book of Micah and we are challenged about what it is said in this book, that we would truly desire to seek out an answer from you. What, what it is that you mean when you said this in your, in your book of Micah. And we just ask that you would just give us all a heart um, just to seek you out and to find you and to know and understand you and just a hunger and a thirst for your presence or that you would give us a fullness of the knowledge and understanding of your love for us and that we would be changed by that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So um, last week I was uh, in Arizona and uh, my expectation for the time would be that it would be a warm, sunny uh, experience. But when I got there, I heard on the radio uh, that they were forecasting four, and I was going to be there for that many days, four days of rain. And so um, there was one day in particular where we were outside and I got so drenched and soaked and I was cold and rainy. It was rainy. And uh, later on in that day, though, uh, the sun began to peek through the clouds, and we, we, I began to feel the, the, the warm, sunny Arizona warmth that I had been desiring when I went there. And um, it seemed that the, 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 the sun in that moment was more welcoming and more glorious because I had just experienced the cold, rainy weather previously in that day. And I share that story because as we begin reading in Micah, we're going to see that it is a very sobering book, that there is a lot about um, in, this pages, in the pages of this book of prophetic proclamations of Micah telling the people of God uh, the judgment that will soon become, come upon them because of their sin. However, while this book is filled with a lot of hard truths about God's judgment and wrath, much like the sun breaking through the clouds in Arizona, we are going to see the light of God's mercy and grace shine through these pages as well. It is by God's merciful hand that justice is served and sin does not go unpunished, but it is also by God's grace 
that allows for those sinners to experience forgiveness and restoration when they repent and turn back to him. So with this in mind, let's pick up now in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So here we are given a small description uh, of who Micah is and when he lived. The first thing it tells us is his name. His name is Micah, which is significant because it means who is like the Lord, who is like the Lord. And a, and a faithful Jewish uh, parents wouldn't just choose a name because they like the way it sounds, but they would choose it because they wanted to, uh, they chose it based off of the meaning of the word and what it said about the Lord. So Micah's name, meaning who is like the Lord, is a phrase that, would, that invites the listener to answer in worship, to respond in worship about who God is and glorify God. And anyone who gives an honest look at who God is and what he has done and all of his attributes would answer the question, who is like the Lord, in a, in a song of worship, much like what is being echoed through the throne rooms of heaven. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. See, uh, bearing uh, the name, which means who is like the Lord, we don't really have to question what, how Micah would have answered that because he wrote a whole book. And it was, this book is a prophetic, uh, his prophetic uh, experience with God, seeing what God was going to do. And throughout the pages of this book, we will see the stark comparison of the righteous holiness of God in contrast to the abominable wickedness and rebellion of man. And giving, he gives us the answer in the, in the, within the, between the lines of these pages that there is no one who, likes, who is like the Lord and, all, and he stands above all as holy and righteous. And he is a just judge against all who are not that way, that do not fit that description. But even in the grandeur of God's wrath and justice and how he executes judgment on sinful man, Micah doesn't land there, though, in his answer to the question that his name evokes. For at the end of this book, we find Micah's answer to this question in Micah chapter 7, 18, where he says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. For Micah, that God would extend forgiveness and restoration toward a repentant sinner is, is the greatest display of God's greatness and glory. This is not just a sentiment that, that Micah holds, but rather we see this as a constant theme of Scripture, which points us to the incredible display of God's glory in the message of the gospel, where he has shown his steadfast love to repentant sinners. And now that we have seen the significance of Micah's name, verse 1 also tells us that Micah comes from a place called Moresheth. The town of Moresheth was located in the lower lands of West Jerusalem, and it was, it was an agricultural town inhabited by people who were not wealthy and did not have much social status. In short, Micah was from a small town of farmers and shepherds. And because of his humble upbringing, Micah could relate with those who were truly marginalized and outcasts of society. This is also significant as another theme that we will see in Micah's prophecy is a prophecy of a promised shepherd king. 
this shepherd king in his tender kindness would, would gather the past to himself and lovingly care for them and defend them from their enemies. And again, this theme points us to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this shepherd king promise. Who in fulfillment of another prophecy by Micah, a specific prophecy, he was born in the town of Bethlehem. And he gathered and has gathered those uh, outcasts, those who are in bondage to sin, who have repented and believed in his name, and gathered them, gathered us to his flock. And lastly, the verse, first verse of Micah also gives us an idea of when Micah lived. As it tells us that he was alive during the reigns of Judean kings uh, Jotham, uh, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, placing him at 750 to 680 BC, which is, if you know the, the history of the Old Testament of Jewish history, this, was, this would be then about 100 years before when the Babylonians and the Assyrians would come in and destroy the, the, the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple in 580 BC. So now we have a, a established this brief overview of the book of Micah, where he lands in the Jewish history, what is the purpose of his book. Let's continue reading now, Micah 1 and verse 2. It says this, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So our first truth for this morning is this, Who is like the Lord? For he calls sinners to hear him and turn from their sin. Recently, I had an opportunity to play uh, pickleball for the first time. And since I had never played uh, it before, I had no idea how to play it or the, the rules of the game. In order to, to learn how to play the game, I had to listen to those who, who I was playing with who had played before and knew the rules of the game. And while um, I didn't master the game by any means, um, I did leave that experience understanding what pickleball was, and its basic rules. Had I decided, though, to play it my own way and just ignore the instructions of those who I was playing with, not only would I look very foolish, I probably wouldn't be asked to play pickleball with them again. And in the same way, God speaks to us so that he can instruct us and call us to himself. The primary way that God has, has spoken to us and revealed his will to us is through his written word. Within the pages of scripture, we have the very words of God communicated over hundreds of years through the people of God. It teaches us about God's character, what his will is, and gives us an authoritative understanding of God's voice. The entirety of scripture points us to the key truth that humanity has sinned against God and God in his rich mercy and steadfast love sent his son Jesus to take our place to be punished for our sins by dying on the cross and then three days later, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and he will return again in glory. And this is the clear and emphatic message of Scripture. But Scripture also gives us instructions on how to live according to God's way and not our own. It shows us that if we follow our sinful nature, it will lead to death. Whereas if we follow God and his ways, it leads to life and peace with God. As Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, God's word leads us and guides us in his, his general will and plan for our lives. But scripture also tells us that God, God, is, God is a speaking God. And God has been speaking and communicating to his people from the beginning. And, and through, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God is speaking and guiding his people. 
whether it be calling sinners to repentance for the first time or the instructive voice of God in the life of a believer calling them to greater dependence and holiness in their walk with God. God speaks and God calls us to himself and the work of the Holy Spirit and the, the guidance of scripture gives us clarity to hear and understand his call. And in the case of, of Micah 1, we see that God's call and instruction is a gracious call of warning of the impending judgment. Through Micah, God is calling all to hear and to listen and to return to him in repentance. Even in judgment, God is calling all people everywhere to hear of the warning of the results of sin and to repent. So let's continue reading now, picking up in Micah 1 and 3 to see what God's opening message is through Micah. It says, Before behold... The Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And here we get our second truth. Who is like the Lord, for he justly executes judgment. Who is like the Lord, for he justly executes judgment. Within our hearts, there is uh, this desire to see justice in some way or some form. Whether it be justice in society, that people would be treated rightly and not taken advantage of. Or justice for ourselves, that we would be protected and that those who wrong us would be punished. And then when we see that justice is not served or we see that justice is missed, when someone uh, does wrong and they, and they get away with, uh, seemingly get away with it with no consequences, uh, our, heart, our, our blood seems to boil in those moments when we see that, when justice is missed. And this desire and sense of justice when applied rightly comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God who is righteous and just in all his ways. So we see here in this passage that Micah is given this prophetic vision of God coming down and exacting justice and judgment on all those who have rebelled against him. It, it describes this scene of God's arrival causing mountains to melt like wax and valleys to split open before him. It's, it's, he's using poetic language to give us a picture of the magnitude of God's powerful hand of judgment and wrath. And the, the reason given is the transgression and sin of the people of God. Uh, just a brief look into the history of, of Israel at this time and you will find just how wicked the people had become in, in the rebellion against God. They had joined in the worship of idols and false gods of the surrounding nations. And, and, and to give you a, a, a picture of just how wicked it was, they, one of the favored methods of worship to these false gods was child sacrifices. That was, that was the extent of the wickedness and rebellion of the people of God. Not only had they turned away from God in the worship and they started worshiping false gods, they had sacrificed the lives of their children on the altar of their rebellion and sin. So in God's justice, he is bringing judgment and wrath on those people who have committed these wicked acts. 
And I think uh, this is important for us to note because when we see evil in this world and we have a desire for this justice that rises within us, it causes a lot of us to question that where is God, though, when evil is committed? And uh, I think in answer to this question, we see that God's goodness is, is maybe n- shouldn't be qu- in question because of evil, but rather God's goodness is amplified by his response to that evil. Let me explain. See, the, the, the evil we experience in this life is a direct result of the sin in this world. The sins of other people affect us and the world around us. But this sin and evil does not go unpunished or unmatched. For from the very beginning, when sin entered the world, God established the result and the consequence of sin, which is death. It says, the wages of sin is death. Not only that, the scriptures are riddled with God's promise that no wrong will go unpunished. And that he will bring justice as as he avenges those who are affected by sin and will one day right every wrong. And while sin has an effect on everyone around us and it affects us, the, the greater one who is affected by our, our sin is God. The scriptures show us that sin is direct rebellion against God who is holy and righteous in all his ways. See, when, when David, uh, King David committed adultery with a woman and deceitfully tried to cover it up by murdering her husband, his prayer of confession was this. Against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, while while many were affected by this particular sin uh, that David was confessing, he acknowledged that the greater one affected by this sin was God. So while our hearts burn for justice to be served, when we or someone else has sinned against, God has a greater call and a cry for judgment and justice to be served. So yes, God is good even with the presence of evil because God is just and will not allow the evil to go unpunished. And I know it can be a hard truth to receive and understand and I know that uh, probably to answer that question it requires more than just uh, a simple sermon. And, but I encourage you if you are still wrestling with this idea to seek the Lord out about this. To look to his word that shows us the justice of God and how committed he is to execute justice on the wicked. So committed to, is God to justice that when it came to God's plan of bringing forgiveness and restoration to repentant sinners, God chose to send his son, Jesus, to take the punishment of our sins. It would have been unjust if God were to say, you know what, yeah, you sinned, but I'm just going to forgive you. Instead, God in his goodness made a way for us to be forgiven and for justice to still be served Look at how 2 Corinthians communicates this truth to us. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking our sins and the punishment for them on himself so that we could be forgiven and reconciled back to God. The greatest uh, display of God's justice was in the unjust death of the righteous son of God who had committed no sin but is making, made a way for us who had committed sin to receive forgiveness and redemption. You see, the judgment that is described in Micah 1 is the same judgment and wrath that we all deserve because of our sin and rebellion against God. Because of our sin, we are, we are unable to be in the presence of God because he is, he is righteous and he is holy and he is without blemish. The scriptures describe him as, as dwelling in unapproachable 
light. He is, he is so holy and so much more righteous than we are that if we were to enter his presence, much like the mountains that melted like wax and the valleys that broke open, in our sin, we would not be able to stand in his presence. But God, who is rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that humanity failed miserably to live. He then died on the cross, taking the punishment of our sins, and then rose again three days later, defeating sin and death for us. Because of this, now we can, we can go boldly, covered in the righteousness of Christ, into the presence of God as his children. When we repent and place our faith in Jesus, we are completely covered in his righteousness, and we can enjoy fellowship with God. Who is like the Lord? For he, he has takes, taken the punishments of those who have rebelled against him on himself so that we can be restored into relationship with him. What rich love and justice God has shown us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's continue reading now, picking up um, in Micah 1 and verse 8. It says, For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And here we find our final truth for this morning. It says, who is like the Lord? For he calls us to godly grief that leads to repentance. Who is like the Lord? For he calls us to godly grief that leads to repentance. After telling of the judgment that would come as a result of the sin, the people's sin, Micah then responds with the cry of lament and sorrow over what the sin that would take place, that would, what would soon take place. And we can't miss the significance of this because the nation of Israel was split during this time between the, the northern and the southern kingdom. And Judah was the northern kingdom and, and uh, uh, Israel was the southern kingdom. And there was uh, a history of, of hatred and distaste for the kingdoms between each other. The capital of, of Judah was Samaria, and the capital of Israel was Jerusalem. And Micah was part of the, the southern kingdom. Yet, when he sees the destruction that would first befall Samaria, he responds with lament. Judah, the kingdom that Micah was raised to hate and abhor, was to be judged first with the destruction of its capital, Samaria. And instead of gloating over it and saying, they get what they got, his lament is, uh, he, he, he responds with lament. He responds with deep sorrow. His lament is not void of emotion or expression of sadness as he describes himself as ripping off his clothes in, 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 in sorrow and lament and, and crying out in wild animal-like cries of sorrow and grief. And there's no doubt about it. Micah's cry was not feigned or insincere. He truly wept and lamented over the judgment that was to come over Judah. In this, we see the heart of God. That while justice was to be served for wickedness and sin, God's heart is that his people would turn back and repent. Preceding this call of judgment was decades of God's patient warnings that called the people of God back to himself, but they did not. Peter in 2 Peter says that the, the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We also see in Matthew that Jesus had this same heart of lament concerning the hardness of heart of the people of God and the judgment that would come as a result of it. He says this in Matthew 23. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate to you. We see here God's heart is for our our repentance and restoration to himself, not destruction and separation for all eternity. And my prayer is that as we would, we would have this same kind of lament and sorrow over sin and its destructiveness that Micah and the better Micah, who is Jesus, had. Though we would see the world held in the grasp of sin on, the, on a pathway of destruction and eternal separation of God and truly lament and sorrow over the sins of our, the world around us that this lament and sorrow would lead us to passionately model God's desire for repentance and restoration as we call others to repent and believe just as we have done. That we would pray that God would, that would break our hearts for the, the things of this world that are breaking his heart, the sins of this world. This is what God is calling us to as we see his heart of sorrow and lament in Micah. But we also see an important principle of grief And this is what we'll finish our time discussing. The scriptures refer to a difference between godly grief and worldly grief over sin. Look at how 2 Corinthians 7 communicates this truth. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, the principal difference between the two, worldly grief and, and godly grief, is that the latter leads the sinner to turn back to God. In worldly grief, we may be sorrowful over what we did and even acknowledge the consequences of it, but if that is where we stay and remain, it will just remain and we will remain in that place of death. And in contrast to that, with godly grief, there is sorrow over the sin and its consequences, but it doesn't end there as it leads the sinner to repentance. And I have to admit, so often I find myself stuck in that place of worldly grief over my sin. I find myself putting myself in some sort of penalty box about my sin because I need to punish myself because of what I did. When I find myself in that place, at best I'm I'm regretting my sin and at worst I'm just feeling sorry for myself and the consequences of it. But godly grief may start in a place of being sorrowful over sin, but then it goes to a place of turning back to the Lord and receiving his forgiveness and restoration. As we do this, our understanding of the weight of sin causes us to know God's true grief over it. And then he leads us into the joy of restoration and fellowship with himself. Do you see the difference in those two? One leaves us in a place of hopelessly looking at ourselves and our sin, while the other leads us to sorrowfully turn from the evil of our sins that we have committed and experience the joy and restoration as we turn back to God. The self-condemnation, pity party, penalty box of worldly grief just leads to death. But the sorrowful judge acknowledgement of our sin, of godly grief, that leads to repentance is eternal life. Oh, that we would be a people marked by this godly grief. That we wouldn't be held captive by our sin, wallowing in our own pretend form of penance, and remaining distant from God, but rather we would be convicted of our sin, confess that sin, to God and receive the restoration and forgiveness as we turn away from evil and tor- turn toward the true joy found in relationship with him. 
And if you find yourself here this morning and you've never repented of your sins before, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to call your, your attention back to what the passage said. It said that they had uh, an incurable wound, and that is the same for all of us apart from Jesus. Our sin has given us an incurable wound that there's nothing, no man, nothing in this world that we can do to save us from that, to heal us of that incurable wound. No doctor, no hospital, nothing can save us from this incurable wound, but but Jesus has made a way for us to be healed, that God has made a way for healing and restoration to heal what was, was, was once incurable, to heal the disease that is our, is, is our sins. And if you have yet to do that, I would, I would encourage you to hear the call of the Holy Spirit on your heart right now, the call to, to repent of your sins, to no longer trust in yourselves, to no longer look somewhere else for guidance and understanding and life Everywhere else is meaningless. Everywhere else apart from Christ is death. But look to Christ. Look to what he has done for you and his death and resurrection. Look to what he has done as he has taken your, the, the, the punishment that you deserved. He has taken that upon himself so that you, your incurable wound could be made whole. And for the rest of us who, who have made this decision, the call is for us to continue to turn back. We never outgrow our need to repent and believe. The reality is until we die or Jesus returns, we will sin and we will fall. But let us not allow sin or, or falling to be an occasion for world, more worldly grief that keeps us in that place. Rather, we, we would see it as an invitation from God to turn back to him and to receive his steadfast love and forgiveness. Then as we go throughout our week, our hearts would truly break for those who do not know God. And seeing that they are on a, a path of destruction, we would call them to repent and believe in Jesus just as we have done. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of the healing that you have given us. Thank you for taking on the wrath that, was des- that we deserve because of our sin upon yourself. Thank you that you loved us enough to go and become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Would you impress upon our hearts the reality and the depths of our sin and then at the same time a greater understanding and a greater knowledge of your love for us that you would die for those sinners that you would look down on the wicked, the rebellious, those who have turned against you, those who have gone and served other gods, false gods, and you have said, I will die for them so that they could be brought back into fellowship with me. I love them. Or would you show us, would you impress upon our hearts, pour, pour out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit your great love for us that we would truly know and understand it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.